Are we waiting here because you've got to let the dog in the studio out to pee? See, I wish we had that thing from CES. Oh, the ways in the automatic dog door opener yes. so that you didn't have to get up and we'd all have to sit here waiting for you. I know. I hate doing that. I really, you know, it, the, it's it's bad in the middle of the night. The dogs decide they have to go out. Schmooze the other day had, uh, she got into something. She was eating something. So she um, had diarrhea. So every 20 minutes, I'm trying to fall asleep and no. You do realize, though, that if I edit out most of your complaining about your bodily functions, chances are really slim this is making it into the show this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, stand by. Here we go. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth featuring musical guests Sting. The passing of a percussion legend. We'll look back at the death of Russia's Neil Peart. CBS's streaming service boldly goes where the Star Trek franchise has gone before, but will bringing back Jean-Luc Picard overcome streaming subscription fatigue? I hope so, but I don't have a lot of confidence. Uh, plus a gadget from the music industry's equivalent to CES that spouses of guitars everywhere will probably, we think, appreciate. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Thank you. Here we go. Our next guest is one of the greatest drummers in all of rock and roll, and he is currently on tour with his band Rush, who just released a 30th anniversary edition of their seminal album, Moving Pictures. Ladies and gentlemen, now, afterwards, everybody gets a ride in Neil's time machine, so hang, ar <laughs> hang around for that. Please welcome for the finale of Drum Solo Week, Neil Peart. In fact, I published something in a couple of places on globalnews.ca and also on my website of Journal of Musical Things. Uh, it's a layman's guide as to why drummers all over the world thought he was the greatest thing in the world, the greatest thing ever. You know, there's this there's this joke, this, you know, how many drummers does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is five, one to do it and four to say how Neil Peart would have done it better. That, that's pretty much sums it all up. I always assumed that the lyrics that came out of Getty Lee's mouth in Rush 
was Getty's writing, but it was the drummer, which is weird because aren't the drummers supposed to be the dumb guys in the band? Well, this is the point. This is why Rush was so appealing to nerdy guys, because A, they rocked really well. B, they were all uh, virtuosos at their instruments. And C, they were intelligent. You know, they talked about things that nerdy guys like to talk about. Like, hang on, back up. Let, let me help me understand this. Are you telling me that a fan of Rush back in the day, the long haired freak, the, the, the guy with the mullet, the guy that scared straight laced me in high school? That guy was actually a nerd? Uh, no. No, no, no. We nerds, chances are we had short hairs because we were good boys. And we're almost all boys because there are very few female Rush fans or have been traditionally this a joke. Uh, no, we got good haircuts because we wanted to please our moms and grandmothers. So not the stoners, not the long-haired guys. These were the guys who would point to Rush and say, look, it, you can rock and be brainy at the same time. And okay, so prove that to me. Prove to me that Rush was a brainy band, because I never really got that impression, despite the lyrics. It began in earnest with the fourth album, which was called 2112. It was released in 1976. It was a make-or-break album for Rush. record label in the U.S., a company called Mercury, uh, because their last album, the Caress of Steel album, didn't do as well as everybody had hoped. So they had to come up with something that would hit it out of the park, and they did. So side one of 2112 is this big, long, 20-minute-plus opus that's half, pro well, that's one-third prog rock, one-third sci-fi, and one-third philosophies of Ayn Rand. <laughs> Uh, this is not the kind of stuff that normal bands write about. And uh, they did it in a way... I mean, there were bands like King Crimson and Yes and a few others, but they seemed to be leaning... They didn't rock as hard, you know, with the big guitars and the big drums. And again, you got to really understand that that Neil Peart's drumming was such a big part of what was attractive about Rush because nobody played like this guy. When you're in a power trio, you have a lot of space to fill. Each musician has a lot of space to fill. And Alex and Getty and Neil understood that and they each found the perfect balance between the three of them. Like none of them stood out because they were all awesome. So if you went to, you know, best guitar players poll, you know, there would be Alec Lyson, went to best bass players polls, uh, there would be Giddy Lee, and he went to, to drummer's polls, always Neil Peart. So these guys were fantastic, and they were Canadian. That was the other thing, too. This, this band that was turning out to be pretty successful was not only brilliant in their, in their playing, but they were also Canadian. And, and, uh, my nerdy friends in high school, when we decided that we were going to form a band, you know, we were all into Rush. And we sat down one day at lunch and decided, uh, okay, who's going to play what? And uh, my hand was up first. I wanted to play drums, and I wanted to play drums because of Neil Peart. 
you mentioned that that glorification of Rush. Uh, when I was in school, we didn't join a band. We didn't. Rush didn't lead us to do that, but we did have the campus radio station in college. And as part of the the Humber College radio program, it was your job to pull shifts on the campus radio station. Most campus radio stations aren't run by the radio program. They're just, they were at the time anyway, free access radio stations back before we had the age of podcasts. And as a result, we'd have to pull shifts. And there was a guy that I, I went to school with. His name is Steve Lancashire. And every time I hear Rush, I think of Steve Lancashire. Steve Lancashire. He was always playing Rush? No, because he was such a huge fan. Uh. And he disappeared. He, he was one. He was a Christmas graduate, as we called it, where he disappeared at Christmas and never came back. And we found out that was because while he was still going to radio school and learning the craft... He got a job opportunity to fill in on a mat leave assignment up in Huntsville, Ontario, and he took it. And the school, looking at his scholastics and recognizing if he can get himself a gig in radio while he's still in school, all the more power to you. I think he actually graduated with the diploma, even though he took off, you know, six months early. And um, the thing about that guy was that because he was such a big fan... He wanted to change his name on the campus radio station. To what? Changing your name for radio seems to be a really big thing. Everybody assumes once you're on the radio, you're going to change your name. I'm sure you know more than one person who's done it. Oh, yeah. One or two. <laughs> one or two. Uh, and when I, and this guy was no different. So he, he went on the air not as Steve Lancashire, but as Steve Getty, which kind of had a ring to it. Yeah, it did. But Steve also had a thing for the campus pub after his shift. And he'd get so blotto that by the time he made it to his next shift, it was a complete blank as to what he had called himself the previous shift. (laughs) (laughs) Every shift, it was a new variation of Getty Lee. It was Steve Getty. It was Steve Lee. It was um, Getty Lancashire. Not once, though, Neil Peart. Just as a side note here, um, it used to be back in the days, especially of AM radio, that if you were hired to fill a shift, you were hired to replace somebody, uh, they had a jingle package around the person who you replaced. (laughs) So I know a number of people who got a new job and were told by their new boss, their program director, that, yeah, we have a jingle package, therefore your name is now X. Uh, well, that's not my name. No, but we got the jingles to go along with it. So you are no longer, you know, Henry Lankensheim. You are now Brad Williams. Oh, okay. Don't forget it. All very generic white names. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and wherever possible, two first names. Mark Richards, CKLW. Yes. The, the TV version of that, I was visiting a small town TV station making an appearance on a morning show. And uh, the woman who was doing the weather had mentioned to me uh, that the giant mural on the side of the TV station that had the anchor, the co-anchor, sports and weather, that it wasn't actually a picture of her. She was Indian. 
the previous person was also Indian. Oh, God, no. So they didn't feel the need to change the picture on the side <laughs> oh, of the freaking building. No, because, well, they're all the same. She's like, I've been here two years. Oh, oh, oh. How crazy is that? That is just so wrong on so many levels. So many levels. Anyway, back to Rush. Did you say hockey? got so many stories. Uh, I never met Neil in the 40 plus years I was a, a Rush fan. I came close once. I used to teach at a drum store called Drums Unlimited. This was at Maine and Inkster in, in Winnipeg. I know you told us the story one time about your favorite student. She was quite milfy. She, no, she was not. She was very, she, well, she was older, but had no sense of rhythm. None at all. Um, are you suggesting that that translates into no sense of other things? Uh, perhaps. I, uh, I've, I, you know, I've put her out of my mind because she was difficult. Um, so the guy who owned the store was a guy named Kerry. And I was teaching one night and Rush was in town at the Winnipeg Arena. And he said to me, I bet you cannot get Neil Peart to sign a drum head that we could put up here in, in the store. And I said, challenge accepted. So I took a, an 18-inch Remo drum head and I went down to the Winnipeg Arena and I bluffed myself almost all the way backstage until somebody sent for a drum tech to come and and see me because I was adamant that you know what Neil needs this this head if he if he doesn't get this head he can't play tonight <laughs> now nice. not knowing not knowing that that when you go on tour you have a thousand of these heads in reserve because you are going to break them and because you know they are going to go out of tune so uh, after being very, very adamant, somebody came up to, to see me and I explained what the situation was. And he just kind of uh, shrugged his shoulders and went back. And uh, five minutes later, I get a drum head back, two drums unlimited from Neil Peart. Wow. That's the closest I got to him. That's not bad, though. Yeah. And that was 19, 1983-ish. And that was when, when I was working... I could take $5 per kid because I think it was $10 for half hour. I could take $5 per kid or I could bank all my earnings and take it in gear. So what I ended up doing was not being paid for everything and ended up exchanging my services for a giant Tama Imperial Star set, silver, of course, 24-inch kick drums, two of them. Uh, that was very close to what Neil Peart was playing at the time, between 81 and 83. So I I still have that kit in the basement. Yeah, most of my high school um, summer job type money went right back into the computer store at which I worked. Yeah, I can see. Well, see, my money went right back into the drum store where I worked. Commodore Amiga 500, man. Mm. God, what a sweet machine that was. Hello, Mike. I hear you got one of the new Commodore Amigas. It's printing the club newsletter right now. So you have time to talk. The Amiga has multitasking, Jack. While it's printing, I'm working on my video. Your video? Well, sure, I've got it hooked into my VCR. I've got myself animated over taped images. Mm, nice music. Four-track synthesizer, stereo sound. Try that on your monochrome Mac, Jack. Jack? The new Commodore Amigas. Only Amiga makes it possible. 
probably cheaper than my 20, my 11 piece Tam Imperial star. Yeah, I, yeah, and that's the funny thing about it is as much as computer geeks get ribbed for the cost of their hobby, you know, I, my wife comes home after girls' nights complaining about friends who have husbands with cars in the garage that are up on blocks from 1972 mm. that are still about $12,000 away from being fixed. Oh, yeah, yeah. And other people who have um, other hobbies like renovations and yeah. You know what I'm doing right now? Um, I had to interrupt to come on and do the podcast. Uh, I bought a new resonance-free um, stereo stand <laughs> for my uh, my high-end thing down in the basement. So you I'm mean gonna... such that no matter how much vibration comes off the speaker cabinet, it doesn't get translated into the floor or something? doesn't get translated into the floor. doesn't get translated into the turntable. It is super, super isolated. And uh, I can't wait to uh, put everything all back together. I have one more shelf I have to put back together. Now, our ace producer, Vanessa Azoli, is presently dealing with the chaos that is similar to the CES chaos you and I dealt with. But she's at NAM, N-A-A-M, is it? Or N-A-M-M? National Association of Music Manufacturers, yeah. So this is uh, the, the CES of the music industry, basically. Is that right? Essentially, yes. Did you see the link? to the the cool new toy that uh, she found nam is huge there are so many things there i mean sure you got new guitars you got new amps but you also have all the new electronics and all the new doodads that go along with making music i wonder if maybe next year it should be that instead of ces i you know what it's in california i i would not say no because you know one of the things that they have that you would like is all the studio gear Ah, uh-huh, yes. Well, then that's part of the problem is is the Geeks and Beats bank account would be drained almost immediately. Well, immediately because we would, you know, both of us. No, not just forget the Geeks and Beats bank account, our, our personal bank accounts, because I'd see stuff that I'd, you know, never knew I needed and have to have it. You're not a guitarist. I know that. No. But uh, Vanessa has found the Boss Waza Air revolutionary new way to experience a guitar. Okay, what's that? It's basically a Bluetooth dongle you connect to your guitar, and it uh, allegedly fuses a premium amp and effects tones with the Boss spatial technology. But the neat thing, to me anyway, and I'm not even a guitarist, is that because it connects via your phone as well, you can jam with existing music, and you can position yourself on a virtual stage in 3D for audio based upon where you would be in the band. So you would hear the, the, the lead guitarist off to your left, because you're the bass guitarist. Right. You'd hear the drums behind you, and way over on the far other side would be the keyboardist. So, uh, so this, is a, this is an oral um, illusion? It, it, exactly. And it plugs into your headphones so that you can rearrange where you are on the stage while you jam with regular MP3s of actual regular music. That's really cool because I have an electronic kit that I bought uh, at another uh, Geeks and Beats event. Um, and, and I'm trying to, to get the most out of it. And I would love to have something like that where I would feel like I'm at the back of the band where I would normally be. And then the guitar player and the singer. And I, I like this idea. This is really cool. So the, you, you would hear um, everyone else up front, as it were, because you're in the back. 
Yeah, up, up front. Uh, so my um, field of hearing would be basically uh, in front of me from left to right. Meantime, y'all jazzed about Star Trek Picard this coming week? Well, all that emptiness, all that silence. I'd forgotten how much I loved it. You really want to go back out into the cold? I may never pass this way again. Skies smiling at me Nothing but blue skies do I see One is never safe from the past I want you to reinstate me for one mission The past is written But the future is left for us to write Engage. Blue skies smiling at me. I don't want the game to end. I know it's starting to ramp up. There was a premiere in in Hollywood a little while ago. Um, it was all fans, uh, but but I haven't heard anything back from it in terms of whether or not the first. A couple of episodes are, are any good? We haven't gotten any more insight into the cast, the plot, any of the details other than basically the release date. Yeah. Uh, although we did find out that Jerry Ryan, who plays Seven of Nine, had never ever worked with Jean-Luc Picard, Patrick Stewart, and that this was a great opportunity. He only ever met him once. Oh, come on. She, she was never in the same room with him doing TNG? Exactly. So as a result, um, here was the opportunity. Because uh, Jerry Ryan 7 of 9 came out of uh, Star Trek Voyager. Yeah. Uh, and No, 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 no. She was part of the next generation, wasn't she? So let's look it up. 7 yeah. of 9. Nope. Voyager, dude. Really? Yep, she was a former Borg drone who joined the crew of the Federation starship Voyager. Her full Borg designation is? I don't know. Oh, come on. Surely in the day when it aired in 1997, you knew exactly her full title. I was too busy staring at other things. Seven of Nine, tertiary adjunct of Unimatrix Zero One. Huh. What am I thinking about then, having her... On Next Generation. Okay, well, so she was a, a Janeway project. Okay. My now 13-year-old daughter and I gorged ourselves on Star Trek Voyager because I wanted to get her into Star Trek. Right. She had no patience for the Next Generation. Like episode one, like the pilot episode is a two-part. Oh, that oh, was terrible. Just awful. I remember when that was first announced and thinking, oh, this is never going to work. And then they had the two-hour premiere uh, with Q and, and, and you know... Um, data being the real Pinocchio kind of character, it was. I thought, oh, this is gonna suck. In fact, that first, the first two seasons, kind of sucked. But then we get into season three, and it really began. To, the writing really began to get a whole lot better. Apparently, Q makes an appearance in Picard. Oh, good, because he was one of the best characters in, in Next Generation. You just don't get it, do you, Jean Luc? The trial never ends. We wanted to see if you had the ability to expand your mind and your horizons. And for one brief moment, you did. When I realized the paradox. Exactly. For that one fraction of a second, you were open to options you had never considered. That is the exploration that awaits you. 
not mapping stars and studying nebula, but charting the unknown possibilities of existence. Q, what is it that you're trying to tell me? Very much so. Uh, so it, for someone who is so dialed into Star Trek as I thought you were, you know absolutely nothing about this. Uh, no. Which suggests to me that um, the whole purpose of moving all of this to CBS All Access and forcing people to buy a subscription to yet another streaming service is that maybe it's not going to move the needle on subscriptions as much as one might think. Well, they, they I was reading something today about the other Star Trek that CBS has running right now. Discovery, which shoots in Toronto, by the way. Season three is underway. At, at Pinewood Studios, they're down on, on the lakeshore. Um, they said they were happy with the way it performed, but then also under their breath saying that the numbers weren't that great. Right. And so they're now relying on Picard to, to bring it all back for them this time around. Maybe we got to go back to the future with, with the reboot, because, again, the last couple that we've seen had nothing in common with the traditional Star Trek timeline. Do, do you have the stomach or the appetite for another reboot? Because we already rebooted the original series with Kirk and, and all the others. Yeah, I, I didn't mind that reboot, but all the other tertiary uh, series. I mean, I, I even had a hard time with, with Deep Space Nine. I was just going to say, Deep Space Nine feels like the only thing you'd reboot other than, say, Voyager. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Voyager was just another voyage of, of another starship. The thing about the Voyager, though, was they actually did make it home at the end. Spoiler alert. Yeah, sorry. Sorry to everybody. Mr. Paris, what's our position? Right where we expect it to be. The transwarp network has been obliterated, Captain. We'll celebrate later. Mr. Tuvok. And, and that, that sort of stunned me. I, I, I know that Star Trek has a reputation for wrapping things up in a nice bow and usually in the last seven and a half minutes of an episode. Mm -hmm. But it sort of struck me as odd that they wouldn't leave the door open and that, in fact, not only did they get home, but it was remarkably anticlimactic. It just sort of ended with a wormhole opening near Earth, a giant spherical Borg like ship coming out of it the whole fleet getting ready to fire and just before they do it explodes and through the debris comes voyager and they're like time to go home and they go home it's like roll credits I'm like what we're being hailed on screen sorry to surprise you next time we'll call ahead welcome back it's good to be here how did you... It'll all be in my report, sir. I look forward to it. Yeah, how many years were you, you flying out there in the middle of nowhere, not knowing if you'd ever get home in your lifetime, and all of a sudden, oh, we're there. Ah, great. Okay, next mission. How many years were they out there in the great beyond? I don't know how many. Okay, Price is Right rules, closest without going over. How many episodes did they have? Seasons. Were there not... Five seasons? Okay, not bad. You didn't go over. There were seven seasons and 172 episodes of Star that Trek many? Voyager. Yes. Okay. It aired between 1995 and 2001. I have to confess, I think Star Trek Voyager is perhaps the best version of Star Trek out there. After what? Next Generation or period? 
period. No, 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 no. Next generation. The writing was remarkable. It was very human. Uh, it didn't have the, the Pinocchio-like issues associated with data, um, even though we had Seven of Nine sort of fulfilling that role to a degree. Uh, it uh, it was very well written. And the the neat thing about it is the graphics were really good. It was one of the first Star Trek series where we really started to see computer-generated animation on a regular basis in the world of television. Although, admittedly, by and large in the Star Trek universe, that CG was mostly laser blasts and weird lightning effects. Yeah. That one lightning effect. I disagree because I think that next generation, when the writing was on point, it was really, really good. Journey to a sci-fi utopia where poverty, racism, and war are things of the past. And forget the original Star Trek's miniskirt voice club. Uh, she does a good job, all right. It's just that I can't get used to having a woman on the bridge. Because on this enterprise, the future is woke. Klingons appreciate strong women. We no longer enslave animals for food purposes. I have decided to allow my child to choose its own sex and appearance. At least most of the time. Okay, well at least things are better, right? I mean, the ladies aren't all stereotypical anymore. I never met a chocolate I didn't like. Damn it, Troy! I can never remember the name of the episode, but uh, Picard's on, on the bridge. He gets zapped and he's rendered unconscious for 20 minutes. Meanwhile, in his head, he lives an entire lifetime on another planet. Right. And then he wakes up and he realizes that I've, I've only been gone 20 minutes. Well, I've been gone actually for 40 years. Right. And he's been married. He's had a wife. He's had a life. Mm -hmm. uh, and then 20 minutes later, he's back to where he was before. That, that, would, that would screw with you, I can only imagine. I would need a vacation. <laughs> After that, I would need, I need a little time to... I thought you were going to cite the episode where he was tortured with the... There are four lights, are lights! Right. Yeah. That's that's one of the all-time big... It is. ...episodes. You know, Sir Patrick Stewart admitted recently that uh, he almost passed up Star Trek altogether. Yeah, it was beneath him. He was a, a classically trained actor, and he did not think that he belonged in a, in a sci-fi show. As a matter of fact, everybody, first two seasons, thought he was a real stick in the mud. Um, because he was he was acting on the set the way he would have backstage at uh, Stratford at the Globe Theater. Um, there's no fooling around. There should be no you know dilly dallying. We are here. We are actors, and we are here to do a job. And then he eventually lightened up after a while. You know who else needed to lighten up a little bit in the Star Wars universe? Obi Wan Kenobi. Alec Guinness hated the character yeah. of Ben Kenobi. Yeah, I remember that. A kid came up to him uh, boasting that he had seen Star Wars 100 times and asked for his autograph. And Alec Guinness turned to him and said, I'll give you an autograph if you promise to never see the movie again. <laughs> but didn't he get some weird back end on that and made more money than anybody else in the cast? That doesn't surprise me at all. The, the The financials for Star Wars were all over the map. It was yeah. the big reason why George Lucas managed to be as successful and, and, and powerful as he is is because the studios didn't think there was anything of it and basically gave him all the merchandising rights. Yeah, and, and he's made, you know, it's $500 billion worth of stuff so far. Um, 
I think Harrison Ford was the highest paid member of the staff. Well, he was also the, the most experienced, and he came from American Graffiti, which was another Lucas production. Yeah, I think he walked away with a million dollars. I know that Mark Hamill made less than $400,000. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. Shut up, Wesley. Because he took a back-end deal that was a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the gross, and it was $386,000. And then um, Carrie Fisher made just a little bit more than that. Mark Hamill has retweeted or liked six of my tweets so far. No kidding. It's getting pretty serious. Uh, Getting back to TV shows for just a second, we will have a review of Avenue 5, which is the new HBO thing that, uh, as we record this, has not run yet. But it features Hugh Laurie as the incompetent head of a galactic cruise ship where things go very, very wrong, and uh, it'll take years for uh, for this ship to get home. Bit of an update. The three injured passengers no longer injured. Unless, bit of good news. No, no, no. Um, they're dead. Probably should have led with that guy. Right. you are flexible. You are. Oh, it's broken. Good morning, Captain. No, oh, you look haunted. I want answers. What are NASA saying? Is NASA saying? Is it is or are? Yes. What is they saying? NASA can offer both expertise and resources. We can. This is the overall cost to NASA. <sighs> is is that the figure or a phone number we call to get the figure? It looks like a lot of fun. And I'll tell you why, because the creator of the show is a guy named Armando Iannucci. He created a show for the BBC called The Thick of It, which was a, a political satire comedy that was absolutely devastating. And then once he did that, he went on to create Veep for HBO, which is one of my all-time favorite HBO shows. So if you have him and Hugh Laurie, and by the way, I am still working through my house marathon. I have 66 more episodes to go. You have those two people in charge of, of a TV show. I cannot wait for it. It may take a couple of episodes to to find its footing, but um, that'll be that's my new Silicon Valley. This is basically Gilligan's Island, but in space, is it not? Uh, it sounds like it. It really does sound like it, except that we've got a, an entire cruise ship full of people. Or maybe it's a reboot of Voyager. Uh, no, because there are some, apparently they're, they're, they're up around Saturn. It's only set 40 years in the future. Oh. So they were going to just, uh, uh, you know, it was supposed to be a, a quick jaunt out to Saturn and back, but then things go wrong and it'll take years for them to, on the trajectory that they're on to get back home. Here's one for you. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I was hooked on For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus. Yeah, the Apple TV Plus. How uh, did you finish it? Oh, yeah, I got to the end of it and I didn't realize it was the last episode and I clicked the button to hit the next one and there wasn't a next one. There is nothing quite like that feeling of letdown when you think there's more than there actually is and you've already binged watched the entirety of the series thus far. Okay, so uh, for people who don't have Apple TV Plus, do the synopsis again. The premise is, what if the Russians were the first to land on the moon? And it led to the space race never ending. 
and it extends all the way into the mid to late 70s. We're talking Apollo 26, that kind of thing. We're talking about a base on the moon, but it's all done with the technology of the 1960s and 70s. So it doesn't pull off a space 1999 kind of fantastical feel about it. It deals with all of the real world logistics of using 1960s and 1970s technology to colonize the moon. In the meantime, it also deals with the issues that were going on of the day. Uh, So you still have the Equal Rights Amendment as a a topic that comes up to the point where when the Russians put uh, a woman on the moon, well, of course, now the NASA program needs to have female astronauts, and it talks about all of the back and forth and the social implications of things like that. Uh, it deals with uh, gay characters who, back in the 1970s, not in a million years would have come out of the closet at NASA. And it deals with two characters. He's gay. She's a lesbian. They get married just because the FBI is sniffing around. Things like this. So there, there's a remarkable socio focus to the series as well as the geeky technical side of things and i absolutely loved every minute of it how are the production values top notch you feel like you are present at every launch i spent a lot of time watching corridor crew videos on youtube and these are special effects guys and they break down special effects they show you how they're done and all this kind of stuff i'll tell you this The vast majority of television content you watch, almost every single frame has a digital fingerprint on it. Almost nothing we consume today that is big budget production, right down to Mindhunter, which is all about chasing serial killers on the Netflix series, Mm -hmm. entire backgrounds aren't real. Uh, It's amazing to see. And so when you see the the Saturn V rockets, when you see the mission control, when you see the moon, you you feel like you're watching a big budget movie, but it's a television show. All right. I have yet to make the plunge into Apple TV Plus because... I got it free for a year because I bought the iPhone 11 Pro out of nowhere. Bing, bing. Hey, guess what? You get this for free for a year, but give us your credit card now. Yeah, because uh, negative billing, right? So Right. Right. I'm getting subscription fatigue. I have subscriptions to so many things. You know, I got Amazon. I got uh, Netflix. I've got, uh, you know, a whole bunch of other things. And, and I'm getting really tired. I look at my credit card statement and go, wow. You're not alone. I, and it's, it's bizarre how everything old is new again. This was the same situation that we experienced with the advent of cable television. We went from 13 channels you know, flipping the, the the VHF, UHF button, dial. Now we've got this fractured experience of all these streaming services that the fatigue is a real thing. And that's why I feel Picard may not be enough for CBS All Access. Well, and NBC is going to launch Peacock soon. So that's another one. Oh, yeah. Americans have had to binge watch episodes of Friends before it was pulled off Netflix. Yeah, because it's going to Peacock. Right. Fortunately, here in Canada, not uh, much of a problem. A wifey and I binged watched all 10 seasons over the course of like two and a half months. You want to know the biggest takeaway out of watching all these episodes back to back to back to back to back like that? What? Phoebe? is an absolute sociopath. <laughs> yeah. She is a horrible, horrible human being, and she's played off as the lighthearted, goofy, wacky character. 
But the real acting chops out of all of them, the guy who plays Joey Tribbiani. Oh, Matt LeBlanc? Matt LeBlanc steals that series. He is a, a very underrated actor. Have you ever seen yes. a... You know which TV show I'm talking about? Episodes. Episodes. Fantastic. You see, uh, he plays Joey basically from... himself. He does, but he does such a great job. It's amazing. And, and the unfortunate thing is, is that when Friends ended, the spin-off TV series Joey was an absolute flop. Yeah, he's had a couple of spin-offs. None of them have worked. In fact, all of them have had spin-offs. And I guess the only person that's really done well is Jennifer Aniston, although... No, no, with Cougar Town, you've got... Yeah, I was just going to say, Courtney Cox has done okay. Yeah. And, of course, got her start... In the Dancing in the Dark video with Bruce Springsteen. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.